Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll excuse the children to go downstairs. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ and we can encourage one another, build one another up. I thank you that we can hear your word and learn and grow. And I ask, Father God, that you would use us as a church. We make ourselves available to you in every way possible. Thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you, Father God, that we have an absolute in you. Thank you, Father, for this time. Be with the children downstairs and fill them with the truth. Help them to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help them understand the truth. Be with all that are down there this morning. Be glorified in what we do this morning as the body of Christ. In his name, amen. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. This morning we're starting a new ser- series about truth, and we, we, we call it Truth According to John, and you'll see as we go through that why we call it Truth According to, to the Apostle John. This whole idea of truth is so important to us, and to start this series, I want to go to John chapter 19 and begin in verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This was just hours before the crucifixion, and and Pilate asks this very intriguing question, what is truth? The skepticism is there, but this skeptical looking, this, this skeptical question of truth has, it's, it's something you can find throughout human history. Truth. What, what is truth? In our postmodern society, truth has become a difficult concept. The postmodernist challenges truth. And seeks for convenience and and sees most of life as an illusion, so there really is no truth. As postmodernism has consumed our society, most people are comfortable with certain lies. And I'm sure that nobody in here ever lies. Nobody, right? What we have to realize is that lies have become so common, who can we believe? People say anything and are accepted. It doesn't matter if you're talking to a preschooler or a U.S. senator. It's hard to believe anything anyone says. How do we know? In a post-truth world, the question is not, do we need to lie to cover up our behavior? 
The question's not, do we need to lie to promote our personal goals, which people do quite often. The question is not, do we need to lie to gain social acceptance, which is done quite often. The real question is, why would I lie? Why would you call it lying? There's no truth anyway, so everything's okay. In this post-truth world, a person doesn't need to lie to cover wickedness or perversion. Because everything is acceptable. In addition to this, lies have become useful. They're a basic component of social interaction. Truth just doesn't really seem to matter anymore. As a matter of fact, in our culture, truth, uh, it's it's so ingrained to, to not have an absolute and lying has become so, so common that it's rude and sometimes offensive to confront a liar. Because a person should be allowed to live in their own personal concept of lies, deceit, and untruth. When truth is rejected, there's a natural, irrational insanity that becomes prominent. This occurs because the, the, the real issue, the real place that we live as human beings is in a universe that operates on fixed truth, absolute truth. And in those absolutes, there's no flexibility. So if you reject truth, you're in, you're in a really irrational place. Truth is truth. When you lie, you're in conflict with rational, normal, natural, universal truths. And those truths are seen in the the natural world, in, in the created world. So we also see that we have some truths that are related to the creator. There are fixed truths. The laws of nature... The laws of science, physical laws, all established by God. And these things are testable. For example, here's a test. Absolute truth really does occur. Go to the top of a very tall building, say 10 stories, and jump off. It does not matter at all if you don't believe in an absolute truth of gravity. Gravity works every single time. You jump off every single time, down you go. It's a truth. Even in this post-truth world, there are people who depend on truth. Engineers of all types must rely on truth. They're going to build something that lasts or works. They've got to rely on some truth. Pilots, it's a good example. They must rely on truth. And the people riding in the airplane must rely on truth and rely on that pilot uh, relying on truth. Truth matters. It matters to chemists. It matters to pharmacists. It matters to doctors and surgeons. I tell you what, if your surgeon doesn't believe in, in, in absolute truths, you should probably not go under his knife. Truth matters. 
We know things are true. We also call that rational thinking. Rational thinking has actually been included in every human mind by our Creator. That's really how He intends for us to think. The law of God is written upon every human heart, and this law includes understanding the concept of cause and effect. I mean, really, we all do that. People are greatly concerned about protecting themselves, cause and effect. How do we know that? Well, we use seatbelts. Why do we use seatbelts? So we don't get injured or killed. We're, we're careful about what we eat and drink. We're, cause and effect, aren't we? Most of us follow the rules of the road. I mean, you know, there, but there's a cause and effect. We know that we, we know when we don't pay attention in certain ways, we may reap the consequences. That's just a, a fact. And there are certain things in the natural world around us we know will produce expected results, good or bad. Factual, rational results. You do this, this happens. But when it comes to moral and spiritual things of life, absolute truth often disappears in our thinking. And the reason is the consequences of violating moral and spiritual laws are often not immediate. A person can live in sexual perversion for decades and still live. In contrast, if you jump from a perfectly good airplane, which makes no sense to me, with no parachute, which is really irrational... Absolute truth takes over quite, quite quickly and produces the consequences as you hit the ground. Truth. It matters. In our spiritual life, people often enter into a kind of insanity that says, I can do anything I want to because there doesn't seem to be any consequence. The consequence may not be in this life. The consequences aren't immediate, and, and that sometimes sets up a little bit of a, a problem for us as believers. But I believe that the reason they're not immediate is because of God's grace. God allows sinners to survive because God will give them every possible chance to repent and believe in the work of Jesus. So as we go on, let me ask Pilate's question again. What is truth. When we define something like truth, it's helpful to, to go down a path of what it isn't. So what is not truth? So here's, I don't know, seven or so things that truth is not. Truth is not simply whatever works. That's Actually, pragmatism, and, and the view of pragmatism is that truth is proved by whether or not the object of the truth produces expected results. But that's really not truth. Lies can appear to work, but they're still lies. Another one is truth is, is not simply what is agreed upon or understood by a group. 
A group of people of any size can come together and form a conspiracy based on falsehoods. And this group agrees on the falsehoods. But just because there's a group telling the same falsehoods, the same lies, that doesn't make truth. There's still lies. A third one is, truth is not what makes people feel good. Bad news can be true. I have a relative who just got diagnosed with a form of cancer. That's, he does not feel good about that. It's still true. And the other side of that same coin is, there are lies that feel pretty good or bad. It, it, that's not how we define truth. Truth is not what a majority claims is true. The majority of a group of people can't say, well, this is what truth is, just because it's a majority. 51% of a group can be wrong. Truth is not defined by what is intended. I run across this one a lot in counseling. Well, my intentions are really good. Well, your intentions are really good, but they're wrong. You're living a lie. Truth is not how something is known. Instead, truth is... Let me back up because I said that wrong. I want to make sure I get this one right. Truth is not what... Truth is not how something is known. Truth is what is known. We know truth. Truth is not what is believed. I run across this one a lot too. There's, there's some people I've run across that in their theology or in their, their life practice, they believe without a shadow of a doubt, X, Y, Z. X, Y, Z happens to be long, wrong. It's a lie. Just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. So how do we define this? From a philosophical perspective, there's usually three ways that come up that, that, and they're pretty simple, that we use to define truth. The first one is that truth corresponds to reality. What is? What's really there? That, that you, can, you can put the two together. That's what truth is. Second one is that truth matches its object. So here's what I mean by that. I'm facing you in this room. And there's an exit door over here to my left. But for you, the congregation facing me, that same exit door is to your right. But it's absolutely true that it's to my left. It's absolutely true to you that it's to your right. So truth correlates to a sense of reality. It it's something that matches the object. Similar to that, truth, truth is telling it like it is. This is the way things really are. And other, any other way of viewing whatever is wrong. The Greek word for truth in scripture is aletheia, and, and it literally means unhide or hiding nothing. 
Aletheia conveys the idea that truth is always there, always open, and available to anyone. Anyone can find the truth if they look for it. In the, in the Scriptures, there's a, a Hebrew word for truth, emeth, which means firmness, dependable, and duration. And emneth implies with truth that there's everlasting substance and something that can be relied on. And isn't that true? Truth can be relied on. It always works. When we determine truth, when, we, when we're in that process of trying to sort out truth, we've got to find something. We've got to find this, this truth thing as something greater than who we are. It has to come from outside of us. It goes beyond us. It goes beyond culture and individual inclinations. We have to look beyond ourselves. We have to. And if we do that, and if we do that honestly, this means we must look for God. We must look to God for truth. God is absolute truth. And he's the essence and being and reality of everything. God is the author of all truth. If you're interested in truth, you must look to God. God knows all things. All things. So so let me go beyond that because we need to deepen that. God knows all things that are possible to be known. This means that truth conforms to the mind of God. And because he is the way he is, he's chosen to reveal his truth in two ways. He chooses to choose he chooses the, to reveal truth in the Bible, scripture, and in Christ. John 1 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We know from Scripture that truth, this idea of truth being in the Scriptures and in Christ and in the creation around us, truth conforms to reality. And that reality is both in the physical world and the spiritual world. God's truth is in both. So God revealed himself in the Bible. He he reveals his truth in the Bible. Do Do you realize that the Bible never defends itself as truth? You're never going to find a place in the Bible where there's a a verse and you go, this verse says the Bible is true. It doesn't ever do that. And the reason is that the Bible assumes it is the truth as revealed by God. That's why the Bible is so unique. It's one of the reasons. The Bible contains the prophecies, fulfillment, and history of Jesus and describes his resurrection from the dead. And it presents those as absolutes, truth. One of the places that describes Jesus and reveals Jesus' truth is John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And that's important that you see grace and truth put together. In verse 14, it's clearly stated that the truth is involved this thing we call the incarnation. The word became flesh, meaning Jesus took on human form. The creator of the universe entered his creation. And it says that Jesus dwelt among us. And dwelt in that, in that verse comes from a verb that means to live in a tent, literally. So we could say Jesus pitched his tent among us. There's lots of theology that could go into that. Jesus was not just simply some appearance that just kind of happened. Jesus is real. His incarnation is real and truthful. Jesus took on all the essential attributes of humanity. While taking on the attributes of humanity, Jesus completely retained his attributes of deity. Fully God and fully man. The Son from the Father. And what does he do? According to John, he connects grace and truth. The reason is that there can be no salvation without believing the truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul reminded the Ephesians of this, Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Truth, gospel, grace, all of those work together. Truth is vital for the spiritual health of believers. You can't exist as a believer without truth. Paul writes this in Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. That's a very important verse. Philosophy, empty deceit. We could, we could shorten that down. Lies. The reality, the truth is that people are saved when they come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. On the other hand, those who perish will do so because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2. 2.10. This idea of truth continues in First John, in John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There we see it again. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's grace. And he's also the full expression of God's truth. All necessary truth for salvation is available in Christ. God granted grace and forgiveness to repentant sinners who violated his holy law. Nobody measured up to his standards. Nobody can. Christ did. Christ fulfilled the law. The law can't save anyone. The law never saved anyone. The law convicts sinners. I would have to say that the law is truth, but the law doesn't save. The law convicts. 
The law teaches people of their need for grace and truth in Christ. Paul wrote this in Galatians, and I like the NASB. Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. We have to be taught something. What do we have to be taught? We have to be taught the truth. And Christ is the one who brought the full realization of grace and truth. God has revealed the truth of his plan for salvation through Christ. Scripture also reveals the truth when that truth is rejected. Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This this whole idea of truth then is incredibly important to us. So what do we do with it? Paul gives us some practical instruction for using truth. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds or fortresses, depending on your translation. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In verse 3, Paul's talking about walking in the flesh. That's his way of telling his readers, you're all human. You're all human. And, and, and we know from Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to believers. So he's, he's, he's writing to believers. They're human. And in this passage, he's talking about spiritual battle. He's also letting us know that this spiritual battle cannot be fought with human weapons. What do we do? Well, to, to fight a spiritual battle, we've got to use some divinely powered weapons. They've got to be empowered by God himself. The imagery here is important. He's talking about strongholds or fortresses. And, and so, so this is formidable because if you think about the time period when Paul's talking about a fortress, he's talking about something made out of giant stones, protected by armies. This is something massive. So it's a formidable task to take down a fortress or a stronghold. All right, well, let's define spiritual warfare a little bit more because that's a misunderstanding very often. Spiritual warfare is not chasing demons. Now, there may be times when we encounter that, but that's pretty rare, really. And in this passage, that's not what Paul's getting at. Spiritual warfare is here is not chasing demons. He makes it clear. It's bringing down fortresses, bringing down strongholds. What are those strongholds? What are the fortresses? Verse 5. Think about this in the context of truth. The strongholds are arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's lies. 
These are ideas expressing false information about God and false information against God. These are any idea, religion, philosophy, theory, or viewpoint that attacks divine truth. That's the stronghold. Okay. So how do we destroy these ideologies? We go go back to verse 5. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take every thought captive, and if you say obedience to Christ, then actually you could say to the obedience of truth, because Christ is truth. Taking thoughts captive. Well, to do that on a very practical basis, we have only one weapon. And we need only one weapon. And what is that weapon? Truth. It's all you have. You don't have anything else and you don't need anything else. And the more clearly and powerfully, relentlessly you proclaim truth, the greater the destruction of the fortress. Truth. We must be people of the truth. This is the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. It's a war against lies. This means that for us as believers, we have to make an honest assessment of how well we know truth. That means we've got to be in the Word. It also means that we have to make an assessment of how bold we are to proclaim truth. We also have to recognize as an encouragement that truth always wins. Always. Truth always wins. Because truth is Jesus. And Jesus always wins. And it's this victory, this truth of Jesus' victory, that we come together as the body of Christ on a Sunday like this to celebrate communion. And I'd like the gentlemen to come that are going to serve uh, communion this morning. This is truth. We're here to celebrate the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Communion is a reminder of truth. Father, I thank you that we've come together as the body of Christ to celebrate truth. And I thank you this morning that we have opportunity to hear your truth, to live your truth, to support your truth in one another. And I thank you, Father God, that we have some absolutes that we can rest on and live by. Thank you for what you've revealed to us through your word and through Christ. Amen.